It's the weekend and you're surfing the net looking for a new pair of shoes or a picture to hang in your apartment. After selecting the perfect item you just have to have, you reach for your wallet to take out your credit card. A few simple clicks and in just a few days your item arrives. Easy. But what systems must exist that allows us access to credit to buy things shipped to our homes in just a few days? And more importantly, do we reflect often enough on the underlying values of such systems? Beyond only economic growth, are these systems compatible with sustainability and social well-being? We will discuss this and more in this episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. You're listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, where we make sustainability research meaningful for the everyday person. This podcast is produced by the IIEE at Lund University. This episode is hosted by Stephen Curtis and Sophie Sundin. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the IIEE podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Hey, Sophie, I have to say your introduction very much resonated with me. Yeah? Why is that? (laughs) Well, right now I'm I'm looking for a new pair of shoes, uh, and I turned to shop online for a new pair of shoes. And this is funny, in part because my feet are too big. I can't go to a store in Sweden and find a pair of shoes in my own size. Yeah. But that's a niche. Anyone who's listening now, you have a niche. You need to introduce big size shoes. <laughs> I guess that's the case. But, you know, it means then that I need to gamble, you know, shop online, buy a pair of shoes and hope that they fit and hope that they're comfortable. So then, Stephen, this question I ask, do you ever reflect on all the systems underpinning this purchase of shoes? I mean, not typically, actually. I mean, you need a pair of shoes, you go online, you buy a pair of shoes and they're shipped to your door. Uh, but this is exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Yeah, exactly. So we are going to pick up where we left you in last month's episode actually uh, where we concluded by discussing the values that underlie our ways of organizing our society we suggested that as a society we need to think about how we want to manage our resources both tangible and intangible in a way that is equitable and that can support sustainability So in that episode, we discussed in the context of intellectual property, and then we used examples of closed, semi-open or open intellectual property models. So while specific individuals and companies may make decisions as to which models they want to use, this is a question that goes well beyond individual companies and touches upon the very systems that underpin our societies. Yeah, exactly. You're right, Sophie. So if we want to transform our society towards a more sustainable way of living, we'll have to reconcile our vision with reality to address these existing systems. And in today's episode, we'll try to get a little bit more specific to discuss these systems and their underlying values. But first, what are these societal systems we keep talking about? Well, for example, consider our political and financial systems, our infrastructures, our regulations, and even social and cultural norms. These dictate how we today maintain our cities and services that we may take for granted. But are those systems really able to support the transition towards sustainability? Or are they actually upholding unsustainable structures that counteract a just and fair transition towards more sustainable practices? In today's episode, we'll focus specifically on the financial system to discuss the practices and values that underpin much of what we take for granted in our use of money, capital, and credit. Now, I know this sounds like a really big topic, and of course it is, so we'll focus specifically on complementary currencies. These are currencies that complement or supplement national or sovereign currencies, and they can be designed to either reinforce or challenge our prevailing economic systems built on unlimited growth. This is not a niche topic that only we discuss here on the podcast. In fact, research, business, Civil society and even governments from around the world are designing and implementing complementary currencies. Later in the episode, we will talk to one of those researchers here at Lund University. We will sit down with Juan Ocampo to discuss his research on financial inclusion and complementary currencies. Juan is a PhD student, part of the inaugural Lund University Agenda 2030 Graduate School. Stephen, what is this? 
So let's tell you a little bit more about the Agenda 2030 Graduate School. It is the aim of initiating collaborations to move research front and center to address our societal challenges and make progress to achieve Agenda 2030. And Lund University, they're really trying to put themselves on the map here, right? They want to demonstrate that they are a significant contributor to the global work and in particular research for sustainable development. It has already invested 64 million Swedish kroner in the Agenda 2030 graduate school. Yeah, and there are 17 PhD students as part of the first cohort in the graduate school, which are working in every faculty at Lund University. Because, clearly, there is a lot of important research conducted here in Lund that addresses sustainability. So, here at university, we have 60 departments, of which many are conducting research relevant to sustainable development, using different theoretical and disciplinary approaches. And this reminds me of our previous episodes on interdisciplinary education. It seems like the need for interdisciplinary research and education comes up every episode to address our societal challenges. And this time is no different. We will need academia, industry and government to join forces to tackle our societal challenges. And in this spirit, we have collaborated with the Lund University Agenda 2030 Graduate School to produce today's episode of the podcast. Yeah, so, yeah so you can imagine coordinating such a huge endeavor across a large university is no easy task. So we decided to actually invite the person in charge of coordinating the Agenda 2030 Graduate School to sit down with us yeah. and tell us a little bit more about their work. And I'm joined here in studio with Christina Jonsson. She's the coordinator, the director for the Agenda 2030 Graduate School here at Lund University. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So we want to start by asking you to maybe introduce a little bit more about the Agenda 2030 Graduate School. What is it exactly? I think uh, first it's interesting to know that this is actually the, the first graduate school of its kind in Sweden, focusing on the Agenda 2030. And it's also important to say that it's an interdisciplinary graduate school. It's, uh, it's all the faculties at Lund University that participate in the, in the school. And it focuses on the, the grand challenges of today, but using the framework of Agenda 2030 to, to investigate all these issues. And at the core of the graduate school, we have 17 PhDs. But it doesn't, doesn't mean that it's only them. We also have what we call the extended family, where we invite other PhDs who are interested in the program. And in addition to that, which is also one of the core activities, it's our interdisciplinary courses that each faculty has a responsibility to develop by collaborating and offer these courses. So we yeah. have a few already, and there will be more. Exactly, and I know our institute here is hosting a graduate school course. Then we have a collaboration, and that's interesting because that's a little bit special yeah. uh, because you have it here, but it's open for, for all kind of PhDs. And that should also be mentioned that these courses are open for all uh, PhDs at Lund University. Yeah. We have the, the PhDs and the program, and we have also the courses, but our mandate is also a little bit broader to reach out to other researchers uh, at Lund University and also in the surrounding society. I think that's also important to keep in mind yeah. in terms of our mission. And I think it's really great to have that collaboration and cross-fertilization because the sustainability issues that we face require this type of systems thinking. Yes, exactly. So with 17 graduate students across all the faculties here at Lund University, how are you able to coordinate or manage uh, such a graduate school? Yes, I mean, there are some challenges, but also some benefits, of course. Uh, the, the graduate school is a network organization, but the idea is that the, all the PhDs should have their disciplinary grounding so that you're an expert within your specific field. And the graduate school more like this added value in terms that everyone should learn and appreciate how to work interdisciplinary. So I think that's a, the important thing with the, the graduate school. And we enable it with our own activities, with the PhDs and also the courses and all basically all activities we do encourage this interdisciplinary approach because I get all the other things that I need to graduate that I get from the home departments and we give this extra thing, some extra skills that can be useful for them in the thing. Yeah. So why do you think Lund University initiated this graduate school? Why was it important to do so? I think it had a lot to do with timing. 
because we have all these pressing issues. And then we have had the Agenda 2030, which is a good framework to, to deal with all these issues. And uh, I think it was important because it captured many elements that have been important uh, for the university for some time. And the Lund University has a, a sustainable development strategy they're working, but still we need to they need to implement all this the strategy. And the, and the graduate school is actually an excellent example of how you can work with these issues in a more innovative way. And also because of the Agenda 2030, which is a good framework, it also enabled all faculties to be involved because that previously maybe the sustainable development work has been focused more on environmental issues and climate, but the agenda enables other researchers maybe to feel interested in these topics, to focus on social uh, sustainability, economic sustainability, and all kind of different sustainability areas, yeah. so to speak. So we have all faculties. I mean, we even have fine arts. So we have really a law in every. I mean, it's broad. It's not only maybe the the faculties. Do you have maybe some examples then of how these PhD students across the diversity of faculties are engaging with sustainability and Agenda Twenty Thirty? They all have their different topics, as it is now. Their topics are more maybe taking the point of departure from their discipline, which is how it should be because there are different disciplinaries. But when we work together, that's where they find common ground. For example, now they're uh, interested in, in issues of accountability, for example. That's something that can be a topic of interest for many. So we're going to have s- certain themes that we discuss. I think now, because the, the graduate school is so young, we have focused a lot on Agenda 2030 and to understand what it is, what we can use, how their topics relate to the different goals or to the holistic approach of the agenda. Yeah. What do you hope would be the outcome then of the graduate school? First of all, I think, of course, it's uh, that we will have a new generation of researchers, young researchers with special skills that can deal with all these challenges we have ahead. Uh, and that they will also feel that they are equipped to go out on a job market and have whatever they need to to find good jobs and make a difference. Because I think these PhDs who joined the graduate school, they have ambitions of making an impact too in their future careers. So I think this is this is one key outcome. But I also think it's important that by the engaging supervisors, teachers in the different courses, and we have a steering group and we have other networks, we work with other graduate schools, that the, this graduate school will be kind of a... Uh, can enable to make it bigger, to make it larger, to be uh, what they call when something that starts. A catalyst. Yeah, catalyst, exactly. That can make things happen maybe a little bit more rapid. So this yeah. is, I'm, th- I'm thinking about the school like maybe a core, but then with circles that grow out of the core, including more. So The I impact think, ripples out yes, then so into society. Yes, so I think society. the awareness, this can help with awareness and then exactly how it turns out. Hopefully there are going to be new research groups maybe formed by other PhDs and that this can continue. I think these are the major outcomes I'm hoping for. Yeah. Is there anything that you've learned yourself about interacting with the students in the graduate school or or even in your role as as coordinator and overseeing the graduate school? I don't know if it's, it's, it's a learning, but I think a positive experience is it is the enthusiasm and the positive attitudes not only among the PhDs, but also about the, the steering group and others engaged. And what I've learned is even if you have an idea and it's not completely ready, people are very interested in, in being engaged in, in, the, in the graduate school. So if you have a good idea of a school, I mean, just go for it and include people because there are many who want to collaborate. And I think that's a good lesson, not to hesitate. Yeah. Just start, just do it. Yeah, so I think this is then something that we can share with other universities or organizations yes. looking to engage with Agenda 2030. Yeah. You're just saying jump in. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think you need to do a little groundwork okay. first yeah. to know how to maneuver. And maybe also understand what you want your impact to be with working exactly. yes. with Agenda 2030. Yes. Yeah. Probably it's good to have some kind of vision, even if it's not spelled out, but at least to have some idea of where to go. Yeah. Well, this sounds like a great initiative here at Lund University. How can people find out more about the Agenda 2030 Graduate School? I think the easiest way is to visit the, the webpage uh, where we have all the information about not only about the idea about the school, but also about the different projects of the PhDs. And also if someone wants to collaborate, there are contact informations. Anyone can contact us at any time to get information about activities. And we really welcome 
those who want to join us in different types of activities. Yeah. And uh, I know that I follow you on Twitter. Oh, yeah. um, so find the Agenda 2030 Graduate Program on Twitter and other social media platforms. Yes. We'll also link the website to our show notes for the podcast. You can certainly check in on the Agenda 2030 Graduate School there. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to hear more about your work. Thank you for inviting me. Once again, thanks to Christina for joining us on the podcast. If you want to learn more about the Graduate School, visit their website. You can find it at sustainability.lu.se. There, you have access to their blog operated by the PhD students part of this Graduate School. And while there, you can also learn more about the ongoing work at Lund University on sustainability. Yeah, so the Graduate School is seen really as a facilitator here at Lund University among staff, students, as well as external parties, anybody who really wishes to advance Agenda 2030. They wanted to make sure to convey the invitation for anybody listening that would be interested in getting in touch with the Agenda 2030 Graduate School, whether you're at Lund University, in Sweden, or abroad, to design ways to collaborate on advancing sustainable solutions. And because... As we often say here on the podcast, collaboration across disciplines and sectors is really the only way to address our sustainability challenges. Yeah, and we also want to say a little more about the Agenda 2030. We have been letting that concept fly around in the podcast thus far, but we just want to introduce it to you properly. And maybe you've already heard it, you know, flying around in the social debate, at your workplace or around your dinner table. Agenda 2030 is the United Nations blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all by the year 2030. The full name of the agenda is Transforming Our World, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, and it was adopted in September 2015 by 193 UN member states. It comes with 17 Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs, which we mentioned quite often here in the podcast, don't we, Stephen? Hey, uh, we certainly do. Um, I don't know what you to do when you throw it to me like that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm in that mood today. <laughs> yeah, you are. Uh, well, the UN, the, the former UN Secretary General, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, he described the Agenda 2030 as, quote, a roadmap to ending global poverty, building a life of dignity for all, and leaving no one behind. He also said about the Agenda 2030, quote, it's a clarion call to work in partnership and intensify efforts to share prosperity, empower people's livelihoods, and ensure peace and heal our planet for the benefit of this and future generations. Now, the 17 goals proposed as part of the Agenda 2030 focus on a range of systems which are crucial for supporting sustainable development. And this includes action for climate change, for clean energy, clean water, for peace and justice, as well as against poverty and famine. Yeah, and to continue discussing these systems and their underlying values, we focus on goal number eight, decent work and economic growth and its impacts and implications for sustainable and just development. Yeah, so this goal aspires to promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, as well as full and productive employment and decent work for all. Now, of course, this sounds admirable. However, some have argued that the explicit target of 7% economic growth annually, specifically in less developed countries, promotes unsustainable resource use, which is incompatible with the other goals of part of Agenda 2030. Yeah, and we typically measure economic growth using GDP, or gross domestic products. This is a monetary measure of the market value of all the final goods and services produced in a specific time period, typically over the course of a year. It does not distinguish between good or bad growth. So, for example, goods and services associated with horrible things are included in our calculation of economic growth. This includes rebuilding after natural disasters or extreme weather, in addition to healthcare services during the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, so this is a, I have a, just a story about this, if, if you don't mind inter me interjecting here. Please go ahead. So I was at a conference, this was uh, when I was in university in, uh, at the American Meteorological Society. Uh, annual conference in Seattle, Washington, and the then director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was talking about these billion-dollar storm events, meaning uh, severe weather that caused more than a billion dollars worth of damage. 
And she made the point that any type of tornado or hurricane or even earthquake and, and other natural disasters is then impacting our GDP. So these bad events end up really being calculated as part of our GDP and kind of washed away as something that is good for the economy, even though people end up suffering and losing so much in these natural disasters. And I think this is important then when we think about GDP, just to remember that it isn't always um, a good measurement in the sense that it doesn't measure good things. And again, we're back to the underpinning values. Exactly. Uh, you know, but, but I do have an area of good news where we are seeing improvements in relation to goal number eight. And this is specifically around access to finance, which is on the rise globally. And this is largely because of the growing use of technology. So you can imagine that technology facilitates people's access to, to money, you know. Uh, so, for example, from 2010 to 2017, the number of ATMs grew by close to 50% globally and upwards of 6% in least developed countries. In addition, more people have access to digital banking solutions, which eases their ability to participate in our global economic systems. And this is where we want to turn our discussion next. With more people gaining access to finance and banking solutions, more are able to participate in our current economic system. But are these systems, as they are standing currently, compatible with Agenda 2030? Now, we will sit down with Juan Ocampo to discuss his research on digital financial inclusion and the role of complementary currencies to incentivize more sustainable economic transactions. Hey Juan, thanks so much for joining us in today's episode. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay, uh, uh, hi Steven and Sophie, thank you for having me. It's definitely uh, fun to be here. And well, I'm a PhD student at the Graduate School, Agenda 2030 Graduate School here in Lund University. Uh, I'm sitting in the management department, specifically in the Entrepreneurship Center. And my research focuses in alternative financial inclusion mechanisms. Um, basically, I have a special focus in complementary currencies, and uh, this is what o occupies my mind nowadays. I'm an engineer, I have a social science uh, master in organizational innovation, and I have uh, worked before as a governance consultant for the World Bank, an advisor for the public sector in my home country, Colombia, and I have practical experience in implementing technology uh, projects. Um, yeah, cool. And uh, quite a varied background, as you said. That'll help us to kind of contextualize your research, which we'll elaborate on uh, throughout today's discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess maybe we ask, how did you get interested in studying complementary currencies, for example? Yeah, well, that's a fun story, I guess. Uh, there are two main reasons. Uh, the first one was, which is not that fun, actually, <laughs> is uh, the inequality of my country. Like, to be honest, uh, in my home country, there's definitely uh, an issue with how people uh, are, are valued based on their economic, social, or educational background, which, even though they are not have control on it, and the way they can transform themselves, it's very hard. There's a very large uh, gap between being poor and then being rich or middle class. So this had a, this tension always struggled me, and I was constantly looking for ways of how can we solve this. And it's it's a complex question, and where could I look for this? And one day, I, I, I a friend invited me to a movie called Tomorrow, which. Surprisingly, it talked more about the solutions than the problems. And that was refreshing because, well, now it's time to talk about solutions. The point here is that they talk about something that really changed my mind. And it was like uh, they talk about uh, an example in London about uh, a complementary currency that was going under. And then for the next couple of weeks, I was quite in interested in how does this work? What do they mean with having an alternative currency so that's how I started getting into it, like, okay, how does this could work and how can this have an impact in a social transition that I was looking for for my country? So that was the first uh, motive, I would say. And then the second one, I was thinking about monetary systems. Like, to be honest, this is a complex topic. Uh, you have to talk about governance, markets, reliability, legitimacy, politics, and it keeps going. It keeps going. And this is like amazing for me. I, uh, this also replicates in complementary currencies. You really like these complex systems, yeah, and how they interact with each other. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing. It, it's interesting. And, and to solve complex problems, you have to approach it from a complex perspective. So how does this then complexity translate to the monetary system? 
yeah, well, then when you have to take decisions and you have to embed a lot of values on it, well, you have to consider them. You have to consider what technology you are using, what type of economic uh, perspective or theory you, you want to embrace, or what is the social problem you want to tackle. So it's, it's, it's quite complex. And even though I would love to talk a little bit about monetary systems, go beyond this podcast. So it would be uh, great to have maybe other three, four podcasts <laughs> about monetary <laughs> systems. But uh, let's say that uh, for today, I want to definitely like to question, have you ever thought about how our monetary system works? If you haven't, it's based on an assumption of economic growth, cost and economic growth, and basically it works through reserve banking and credit-based money. Okay, Juan, and in conversations with you, we have understood that having a financial system that is based on growth is a problem for sustainability. Can you please elaborate a bit on why this is a problem? I want to say that unlimited economic growth on the planet with finite resources as we have, it is problematic. I, I'm not sure how this will turn out, but uh, I'm, I'm positive about it. I, I hope and I think that we are going to manage it. But however, there's still a lot of developing countries where we need to allow them to grow, to develop, to keep up with what is happening, but framing a sustainable uh, structure. This is how we will start uh, growing and, and developing more into a more sustainable way of living. So, well, this economic financial system creates also challenges to, uh, in, to inequality and to justice because not everybody has the same access, and that's problematic. Let's just think a moment. If you wanted to uh, start a business, most of the people would go to a bank and we would be able to uh, maybe ask for a loan. But that not necessarily is the case for everybody because not all of us have a credit record or collaterals. And banks, usually, well, they, they have to respond to their investors. And this is for profit. So you probably don't get a loan, and that's problematic. So it sounds like that's just how the game works, right? Those of us in, in Europe and North America maybe are very familiar with this notion of credit and going to a bank to get access to capital and so on. But I'd imagine that that's not the case everywhere in the world, Juan. Is that, is that so? Now let's a little bit uh, deeper into developing countries where the people don't even have a bank or an ATM and they don't know what this is. So that al already sets uh, the tone that they don't have access to the financial uh, resources that we already have. And this is creating inequality. And this is definitely problematic. And it's one of the main reasons that we have all these issues today with poverty, with uh, like corruption, with many, many, many big, uh, broad and big picture problems that we have to deal now with, uh, hopefully, with a sustainable uh, mindset. Yeah, so I'm hearing two things about our current economic system, right? The first is that it's focused around infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Mm -hmm. That certainly has challenges for the environment, but then also that it doesn't include everybody in gaining access to economic opportunity, which then leads to social inequality and so on. No. Um, and I guess this is really the, the impetus for your research. As you said, you're a PhD student in the Agenda 2030 Graduate School here at Lund University. How do you see your PhD contributing to uh, the advancement of the sustainable development goals? Basically, economic growth, sustainability, and monetary theory was the, the reason that motivated me to embrace and accept the opportunity of being part of the Agenda 2030 Graduate School. But basically, what I'm looking at in, in this tension of, of, of topics is financial inclusion, because I do believe that it's an important component in development. And um, I want to quote what the World Bank defines as financial inclusion. It says, individual and businesses having access to useful and affordable financial products and services that meet their needs. This means transactions, payment, saving, credits, and insurance, delivered in a responsible and sustainable way. So, in consequences, government, banks, multilateral, and private sectors are already discussing into how to develop financial inclusion mechanisms to allow people to access the financial system. And very important for the case of financial inclusion is how organizations are leveraging in technology to tackle the challenges that financial inclusion generate. For example, with the emergence of blockchain, the digital structure that is now widely used for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, the monetary and financial world was certainly chucked. Yeah, and maybe here we should just clarify that a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin that you just mentioned is a digital asset that in many ways is used just like ordinary money. Uh, but it's not physical. Yes, exactly. That's how, we, how it is. And before the creation of Bitcoin, uh, society trusted in a third party for their transactions, usually banks. But with blockchain, 
uh, what we are now seeing is that trust can be decentralized and the way of making money and using money has definitely changed and developed. So since 2008, we have seen a lot of cryptocurrencies emerging around the world. Even in, by 2009, market studies show that the cryptocurrency market is valuing $250 billion, which brings the attention of regulators around the world. This not only uh, shows the, the potential of the market, but uh, demonstrates the legitimacy that this technology is acquiring. If we are having a big market around it, that means that people will start trusting it more. And we now can use blockchain in a, as a technology opportunity for supporting financial inclusion. Yeah, another trend we see, I guess, in society as well as this moving towards a cashless society where the role of digital money is also quickly growing. Yeah, definitely. This is a trend that is going all over the world. Yeah. And how are other companies then around the world responding to this trend? Well, it's a big thing now, like not only in the terms of, uh, of blockchain and all the fintech industry that is going around it, but now we have like the big tech companies like Facebook thinking about this and thinking about how they're going to develop the world uh, currency. And they have a product called uh, Libra, uh, which they are still in process of developing, but they are definitely investing a lot of uh, political and economic resources on it. So let's see how that's going to develop. But then let's bring this back then to maybe our discussions on sustainability. Um, how do you see these uh, digital currencies playing a role in supporting the SDGs? Yeah, well, that's definitely a good question. And now at this point, we have to start talking about digital financial inclusion. Because, of course, when we start leveraging technology, now we're talking about digital. And the UN has already identified six cases where... Uh, digital financial inclusion would make an impact. And this is how people can manage their money, how can they, they protect their savings, and they, now they don't have to uh, walk around with cash, how they pay their bills, how they inform themselves, uh, how they get money, and how they can grow by saving money. So it's definitely uh, a change. To put this a little bit more in, in context, digital financial inclusion is being um, done by providing microloans. So usually you can get a microloan uh, from your smartphone, uh, from loans to $10 to $500 around. And uh, the decisions of the loans are made through algorithms that look at your uh, uh, behavioral data and your uh, online behavior, I would say. And this, of course, has some like, implication that we could discuss. But uh, anyway, at first glance, this is amazing, no? Like, it's just a way to support uh, people getting their loans and achieving their dreams. This is what financial inclusion is about, don't you think? Well, as, m as many things in life, there's a dark side about it. And what's happening now was that uh, people are being bombarded with loan possibilities and they are getting over-credited. Uh, now they are getting to a debt loop where they cannot go outside it. And what, uh, and there are people are getting, uh, like, uh, bankrupt, they are being press to pay, and this is not the financial inclusion we want. This is not developing people. So with this example, what I want to show is three things. First, that definitely financial inclusion mechanisms ha can have positive impacts, but they can also have detrimental impacts. Second, that how embedded technologies are with us uh, already. Like you can now make ask for loans with your phone based on your behavior on the web page you visit. And the third is that it invites us to reflect on the values and the behaviors that these technologies are using to take the decisions. Yeah, these are really some critical concerns you are raising here. So how do you think uh, complementary currencies relate to digital financial inclusion? Well, let's start by describing a little bit what complementary currencies is. And usually there are complementary tokens to the national currency. So they don't replace national currency, they complement national currency. And that's important that we do make this distinction. So usually these uh, complementary currencies are seen as mechanisms to improve and promote financial inclusions, since they offer communities the possibility to create their own money in a decentralized and autonomous way. This, of course, allows them to access liquidity in times where cash is scarce. So imagine you are in a very rural community where you don't have access to money. Okay, how do you transact? Well, that's where many times you use complementary currencies. This has been used for many years now. There are documented examples from the beginning of the 1900s in Europe, in, in, in South America, in North America. 
So to be honest, the flexibility of complementary currencies is that it allows us to practice values beyond profit. For example, community development, trust creation, and collaboration. However, this is still in development, and there are a lot of questions in regard how can we govern these complementary currencies, and how can we create accountability systems to keep track of them. And I guess another question as well is, is how do we leverage technology in facilitating and governing complementary currencies? Yeah, that's a very good question, because at the moment you can find complementary currencies in paper, as digital databases, and some cases where the level of transparency and accountability is needed, we see them in the blockchain. So I believe that, the, that we're in a very interesting point in, 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 in time, because now technologies are empowering communities to create their own complementary tokens. This increases transparencies, decreases transaction costs, and allow us to think about financial services beyond the traditional banking system. And second, citizens are now more aware of digital money, which gives legitimacy and credibility to the extent that now governments and private companies are researching the ways of making sense of these trends. Uh, but however, I think, and, and this is key in all this discussion, is that we have to get a deeper thought in regard of the values that are behind and the ideologies that are, go around technology. I'm not sure that poverty is going to be solved merely by just giving poor people access to electronic loans or even by easing uh, the banks to, uh, to make a more efficient credit score. Uh, this is not how, how this is going to change uh, poverty. This is not the way. So we have to start thinking a little bit beyond this. And, and we as citizens, we have the responsibility of thinking about the values that we want to embed in this new financial system. Yeah, okay. So this is a really big idea here. I mean, thinking about the values that underscore our financial systems. Uh, but what do you mean when you say values? You know, this is a great question because um, let, let's pull this with an example, okay? So I guess most of us have been in the situation of asking for a loan. So what you usually do when you ask for a loan is that the company will evaluate some of the parameters, like uh, your income, your wage, your uh, credit history, your, um, your education. So there are clear uh, some parameters they want to value to see if you are able to repay your money. Yeah? But basically what, what this, is going, uh, this is doing is that this is focusing in very clear uh, values of monetary and profit. But then I question what would happen if we value other things? Perhaps uh, when we want to ask for a credit, instead of uh, looking to our wage, we look at the CO2 emissions that we're having. Or maybe on how much time are we spending voluntary associations that are accredited. So this here makes a, 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 a completely shift on what is that we are valuing to make decisions. And, and I guess this definitely makes an impact in, in the sustainable behaviors we want to promote. Yeah, this is really interesting, Juan, and I think these are it's a good description of how value systems can impact our financial systems. So then my question is, of course, how are these values embedded into complementary currencies, or are they even embedded? Yeah, well, there's thousands of complementary currencies, and they all have different values and different systems behind them. Like Usually when you talk about cryptocurrencies, the first one that comes into mind is Bitcoin. But uh, Bitcoin has a, a lot of values that, that are similar to the current uh, economic system. It's, there's, it's competition, it's profit-oriented, it's speculation. Well, there's another example called Faircoin, which is totally different. It's based on circular economy, uh, transparency, decentralization, etc. So many different values that it's, it's complex to say. And this is not a discussion of what is bad or what is good. It's, it's just about we have to start uh, you know, uh, thinking and reflecting on the values that we want because governments and international organizations like the UN are now evaluating and defining the policies that we probably rule these complementary currencies. And to be honest, we as citizens, we should start being able to talk in this discussion and have a little bit more influence uh, in that discussion. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Juan. And, uh, you know, as you said, there are so many examples of complementary currencies around the world. Uh, in preparing for this episode, Sophie and I were reviewing some of the examples that you provided us. And I think the one that stood out for me and, and Sophie the most was this idea of art money in Denmark. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good one. It's basically, it's built on people being able to make transactions with their art instead of money. So they're creating their own art in which then they are 
using as a form of, uh, of currency. Yeah, basically that's how it works. But th these are only a couple of examples. As I told you before, there are many, many, many complementary currencies around the world uh, that we, I really suggest to look into it. Yeah, so what are some of the things that we could learn from these examples? Yeah, well, each of these currencies is promoting different values, some economic growth, other social impact, and other civil disobedience. And as a consequence, it shapes uh, the type of actors that participate in them and the markets that evolve from around these systems. So this actually is what I focus in my research, is learning how complementary currencies as social constructions are embedding different values and how their technological platforms operalize these values. Okay, so we're going to walk backwards once again and think about then how does this support the sustainable development goals? Well, this is very relevant. Uh, if you look into the SDGs, uh, many of them have financial inclusion embedded in their targets. For example, uh, SDG number eight has financial inclusion even as one of its indicators, like the number of ATMs per habitants. But uh, what does a community that is struggling with starvation going to do with an ATM? This is where complementary currencies is, are making a difference because the, the complementary currencies allow us designers to define, amongst other things, is how money is created, the rules that control its distribution and circulation, and what values do we want to uh, promote. And there is an organization I'm, collo I'm collaborating with called Grassroots Economics, and which has been uh, working with something called community inclusion currencies for many years now in Kenya. And what they are doing is implementing a complementary currencies based on the blockchain that uses mathematical formulations that allows exchange amongst different tokens. It's an organization definitely worth looking at. I was doing fieldwork last year in Kenya for a couple of weeks, and I was able to see how these uh, currencies, uh, complementary currencies, were working and in these small saving groups and allowing them to save money, give loans, and help people that were in need. For me, this is what we talk about when we want to see development, financial inclusion. How interesting that you have uh, been to Kenya and that you have experienced this on site. And this, of course, makes me curious about your work. As a researcher in the Agenda 2030 Research School here at Lund University, how does this relate to your research? So what I'm researching at the moment is how uh, different personalities in a market uh, can influence the overall uh, behavior of the community. So with some uh, computational modeling, what I do is to simulate uh, these personalities and use a, a complementary currency um, uh, algorithm to allow the transactions. So when you say different personalities, you mean that different people will make different choices based on different factors, yeah? Yes, and, that's And your that's it. computer model will then help you to understand how these different choices create impacts in the system. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the impact in financial inclusion is that now we can simulate some scenarios where for development agencies or we as researchers we're thinking about and, and see how this could uh, this has effects, you know, in the creation of the currency or in the in the whole population. So let's see how this goes because uh, this is just the beginning. I, I really want to understand much better the values and the and the ideologies behind the technology. So let's see how this goes. Well, we'll look forward to following your research in the coming months and years as you wrap up your PhD here at uh, in the Agenda 2030 Graduate School. Juan, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Yeah, well, basically is that the, this technological embeddedness is coming. And we as citizens, users and, and consumers, we have we ever stopped and reflect on the values of these technologies? What are we accepting every time that we use our mobile phone instead of cash? What are the implications of being cashless? This is something that I think we should start thinking about and reflecting. Good. We want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really had a lot of fun uh, developing this and being part of this experience. So thank you to you guys. So, of course, with that sound means it's time for our sustainability scoop of the month. And what seems to be capturing the global attention currently? Well, it's the coronavirus or COVID-19. Now, of course, this is a sobering time for our society as individuals, organizations, and governments prepare their responses to these uncertain times. And one such approach caught our attention, already implemented by the World Bank, is what they deem the pandemic bond. 
So what is this, you may ask? Well, pandemic bonds, also called pandemic emergency financing facility, are a controversial financing mechanism intended to transfer risks due to potential pandemics away from less developed countries. Issued by the World Bank, investors purchase bonds to provide capital in the event of a global pandemic. If there is no pandemic, the investors enjoy a high interest rate between 6 to 11%, which is paid out by funds provided by Germany and Japan. However, in the event of a pandemic, the money is provided to countries in need of financial resources to fund efforts to contain the spread of the virus and respond to healthcare needs. Yeah, so this is not the first time pandemic bonds have been used. The bonds were also issued in response to an Ebola outbreak in 2017. However, they continue to face much criticism as the conditions to trigger payouts to countries dealing with outbreaks are far too stringent. More money has been paid out to investors than to countries dealing with outbreaks. And when money is paid out to countries, it's often too slow to help the crucial early stages of responding to an outbreak. So, for example, one of the conditions for the bonds to be paid out is that the first payment happens uh, 12 weeks since the beginning of an outbreak. As such, for example, in the case of the coronavirus, the earliest that any of these bonds would be paid out to actually support countries reeling with the, the, the coronavirus, the earliest it'll be paid out is uh, the 24th of March, and even some analysts saying not until the middle of April. And this is while countries are already struggling with resources, and in some instances, such as the case of Italy, which we learned recently, under total lockdown. Yeah. And we don't wish to say whether pandemic bonds are good or bad, but it is an interesting example of the underlying values of our economic system. We have created a mechanism for people to make money betting on the risk of future pandemics. So if you want to hear more about this month's sustainability scoop, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. Each month, we send out a reminder email announcing new episodes, which includes show notes, access to research output, and additional information about our monthly sustainability scoop. You can sign up on our website at www.iiwe.lu.se backslash podcast. So today, we've been talking about values in our financial system, but also values more generally in our society. And I think it's easy to take these values for granted, because they're so embedded in our daily lives and practices. I think to actively look at them and challenge them requires us to step out of the box that we're living in. And this is not an easy task and not really something that we always are comfortable doing. But we must remember that most of the decisions and actions that are taken, both individually and internationally, are products of those value systems. So for example, the Agenda 2030 has an inherent value system that actually may prop up some of our existing patterns, which may be unsustainable. Yeah, and I think that most of us would agree that we need and want sustainable development. But perhaps we also need to scratch the surface of the goals we set and the measures we take and ask ourselves what values they are supporting and how they perhaps can be misused by different actors for supporting their own agendas. Yeah, and we have to ask whether our current economic system is also in line with long-term sustainable development. Because as of now, it encourages economic growth, in fact, unlimited economic growth. And as we discuss, measures of economic growth often include both good and bad things, such as natural disasters and pandemics. So we must ask ourselves if these are the values we want to underpin our economic systems. Is a system that concentrates wealth and power in the hands of so few at the expense of so many one that we wish to promote? And is such a system even compatible with Agenda 2030 and the 17 Sustainable Development Goals? From a sustainability perspective, of course, unlimited economic growth will cause extreme environmental degradation. Unlimited resource extraction on a finite planet is simply impossible considering existing laws of physics. Yes, those cannot be ignored. <laughs> and, and another criticism is that such market-driven economies create inequalities when rich countries and companies are exploiting work, labor, and natural resources in developing countries. Yeah, and now let's remember that financial systems are not the laws of thermodynamics. We have created our economic systems, and as such, they can also be challenged, 
and this is where complementary currencies perhaps can provide alternatives that are not promoting growth and consumption, but instead other values like community engagement and environmentally friendly products and actions. Stephen, let's wrap this up. What do you take with you from today's episode? Yeah, so I really enjoyed our conversations with both Christina and Juan. I think for me, one of the key takeaways is that we have to actually look at the underlying values of the systems in which we take for granted. Uh, I know that I'll certainly try to reflect more on the choices that I make as a consumer, especially those that impact my community, as well as those in, in that are maybe being exploited in less developed countries. Now, I'm not saying that I want to overthrow any national currency uh, to the benefit. The Swedish corona doesn't have to fear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, not yet. <laughs> but rather, I think that it's important to continue to seek out alternative ways to buy and exchange goods with people in our society. So, you know, one example that comes to mind in preparing today's episode, I found an interesting example of a complementary currency, uh, actually one based here in Lund. A housing cooperative already in 2011 launched its own currency for trading goods and services within its community. And do you know what was the basis for their currency? No. It was it was actually honey. Uh, they exchanged honey that was locally sourced in order to access goods and services in their community. I think this is actually a good takeaway message for you who listen. You should check out if there are any initiatives like this in your city, in your block, or in your community. And if you cannot find any, perhaps there is room to establish one. I think it could be a fun and rewarding endeavor to come together as a community and think about how we want to increase our interaction and support an economic system that is based on other values than pure growth. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to close today's episode. We want to thank Christina Jonsson and Juana Campo for sharing their experiences and knowledge with us today. We were excited to collaborate with them on this episode and share the great work of Lund University to bring research on sustainability front and center. We look forward to following the impact of the Agenda 2030 graduate school in the years to come. And if you listen want to know more about what the Agenda 2030 PhDs are up to, you should check out their blog. You find it on agenda2030.blog.lu.se. Blog spelled with two Gs. Yes. Uh, so with that, we certainly look forward to following their work. And uh, thanks to you, of course, for listening. We always appreciate you joining us every month on an episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. So do stay in touch with us. You can find our contact information on our podcast website. That's triple backslash podcast. Until then, we'll see you later. See you later. Bye-bye.